Orgy again on a blitz. Levis, pocket collapses. He's on the run. He just heaves it up. And it's intercepted by Vanderbilt. And let the celebration begin. The streak is over at 26. The Commodores win it. 24-21. Clark Lee picks up his first SEC win as the head coach of the Vanderbilt Commodores. It has been a tough week in Nashville. Many members of the team had the flu, including their head coach, Clark Lee. He said it really wiped him out in the middle of the week. But this will make him feel a little bit better. Welcome to the Chatting Yardage Podcast, presented by Sports Drink. Now, here's your host, Cam Matthews. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood college football podcast. Welcome to Chatting Yardage. Part of the Chatting Average family and brought to you by our friends at Sports Drink. Hello everybody, welcome once again to the show. I'm your host, Mr. Cam Matthews. You can find me on Twitter at HeyCam93. You can also follow the show, be part of the conversation at Chatting Yardage. Back this week after taking last week off. Special shout out to my Chatting Average co-host, Mr. Alex Butler, for handling things while I was out of town on work. Typically, uh, don't have to travel too much with my current job, but uh, last week was an exception, so I had to uh, had to go to the bench, so to speak, and bring in the backup QB, and he did a fine job, so special thanks to Alex for covering things last week. Uh, we'll go ahead and dive right into last week's pick six games of the week. These, of course, were games that Alex found interesting and believed you should as well, so we'll go ahead and talk about those results. First game being Alabama against Ole Miss. The Crimson Tide pull away from Ole Miss late and uh, take down the Rebels by, score, by a final score of 30-24. to 24. This is a game that you know, I think a lot of people had their eyes set on, you know, could Alabama lose their third game this season? Could they lose two in a row? Uh, could Lane Kiffin finally take down Saban? And, and you know, it wasn't meant to be. And uh, if you heard Lane Kiffin's post-game, uh, post-game comments, he wasn't happy about this game. And sure, there were, you know, questionable calls, so to speak, but there are in every game seemingly, especially when Alabama is involved, because everything's just under such a such a microscope when they're on the field. But I think, you know, he he knows that they're close, but they're still not quite there yet. He he's done a tremendous job at Ole Miss so far, you know, really putting them in the limelight, you know, making them part of the national conversation. And one has to wonder if this is a, you know, a spot for Lane Kiffin to stay in for a good while, or if this is going to be another leaping pad for him with the Auburn job still open. I know there's a lot of people out there that really seem to think that he is the next head coach of Auburn. It's only a matter of time, but uh, we'll see how that plays out because there's plenty of coaching uh, opening, co- you know, coaching opportunities 
available right now. And the thought around the college football world is that they're going to hire earlier. They're not going to wait till the end of the season. They're not going to wait till the offseason because what's happening right now in the world of the transfer portal, we're going to see, you know, just a ridiculous amount of activity come the offseason. These programs without a head coach want to have their coach in place before any of that starts. So it remains to be seen uh, who will coach at Auburn next year or if Lane Kiffin stays at Ole Miss. But uh, the Crimson Tide take that one 30-24. Tulane falls to UCF at home, 38-31. to uh, Tulane, you know, on a heck of a run so far this season. Drops a, what was a really close, tight game uh, to Gus Malzahn and the UCF Golden Knights. Tulane's going to drop in the rankings a little bit this week, but I tell you, this is still a good football team to keep an eye on, a really fun program to watch. Uh, I've actually gone out of my way to <clears throat> watch a couple of games of theirs this season, and they're just they're just a, a dynamic sort of team that, you know, there's just an enthusiasm about them, and, and it's what you see pretty often uh, when a team who hasn't had recent success suddenly finds theirself, uh, you know, it, with national recognition. So Tulane drops a tough one to UCF. Oregon falls to Washington. 37-34 to is your final at Oregon. Uh, first game in quite a while that Oregon has lost at home. And, you know, it's so funny. You, you look at this game, and I feel like going into it, everybody looked at this game as, as a trap game for the Ducks, right? The Ducks had an opportunity to be able to win out, and despite the week one loss, still put themselves in the conversation for the playoff uh, come this upcoming postseason. But like they seem to do most years, they tripped and stumbled close to the finish line. Um, it seems like every year there is that there's a, a loss or two for Oregon that just keeps them from getting where they want to go, and I, I don't know what to, I don't know how to explain it uh, at this point. Um, you know, it's just it's one of those things that's become expected of them. Um, you know, you remember years ago when when Clemson was kind of a similar way where they'd start out so strong, you know, they'd rise in the rankings and then late in the season they'd collapse or they'd blow big leads and, you know, the term Clemsoning uh, became a thing. And, you know, that's not a thing anymore, of course, but given all of their success over the past few years. But, you know, Oregon is kind of stepping into that role of becoming a team that we know they're good. We know they have great talent. They have a heck of a home stadium. You know, their their home games are as tough of a place to play in as anywhere. Uh, they're always nationally, you know, adorned by, by people. But they can't quite seem to just figure it out as the season goes on. Uh, so the Ducks fall to Washington 37-34. to The fourth game in last week's pick six, TCU uh, clinches a nail-biter against Texas. 17-10 is your final score at Texas. Uh, This was a game that I think people expected a little more fireworks from, so to speak. I don't think anyone expected this to be, you know, a low-scoring nail-biter like it was. I believe the halftime score in this game was 3-0 TCU. But the Horned Frogs remain undefeated, remain at number four in the college football playoff rankings. Uh, So they continue to win and do what they need to do, but they do have an upcoming matchup against Baylor this Saturday. In the ACC, University of North Carolina takes down Wake Forest at Wake Forest. Final score, 36 to 34. Uh, a really good game here, whether you're a fan of both teams or not. You know, this is one of those 
and a high-scoring, high-octane kind of games that I think a lot of people expected it to be between two just, you know, run-and-gun type of offenses, you know, with Carolina being led by Drake May, Wake Forest being led by Sam Hartman. You know, I think this is the exact kind of game that people uh, expected it to be. Carolina, of course, with their ultimate bend, not break performance, especially when it comes defensively, able to come up with a big interception late in the game uh, that kind of sealed things for the Tar Heels. Carolina clinches the Coastal Division and will head to the ACC Championship game on December 3rd in Charlotte against Clemson. Uh, you know, after, after week two... Uh, Carolina's game against Appalachian and with how that game uh, ended up and especially then the following week or really that was week one so to speak uh, Carolina had a week zero game and then in week two the game against Georgia State I think a lot of people did not expect uh, the Tar Heels to be in a position where they're staring at a nine and one record with two games to go but somehow again this bend not break mentality for the Tar Heels has worked so far uh, they've got Georgia Tech this coming Saturday and then NC State next Friday in their final game of the season. Uh, so a couple of big games coming up before they face uh, the Clemson Tigers in the ACC championship game. But again, Tar Heels take down Wake Forest 36-34. to And in your final game of the week, because for whatever reason Alex picked this game last week, I think is a little jab to me, your sickos game of the week, so to speak. Uh, Auburn takes down Texas A&M 13-10. Texas A&M now out of bowl eligibility. Will finish with a losing record this season. Uh, I believe they're the only team in history to be preseason ranked in the top five or top ten and then now finish with a losing record. Uh, things just continue to go extremely bad for the Aggies and Jimbo Fisher. Um, you know, short of losing to UMass this Saturday, I'm not sure how things get much worse. Uh, but, you know, the belief is still that they'll give Jimbo one more season because he still recruits incredibly well. But it will be interesting to see, too, when the transfer portal does open up following this year, just how many of those uh, prized recruits and, you know, and players that Jimbo has amassed transfer out of the program. Go ahead and take a look around the rest of the college football scoreboard for Week 11 in the SEC. Georgia handles Mississippi State 45 to 19. Tennessee likewise takes down Missouri at home 66 to 24 is your final there. And what was a good back and forth game? LSU defeats Arkansas at Arkansas 13 to 10 is your final. A cold blustery day uh, there in Fayetteville, but LSU able to come out on top in that one. And what was a bit of a shocker, Vanderbilt takes down Kentucky 24-21. to uh, We'll talk more about the Commodores a little bit later in the show, but boy, what a big win for Vanderbilt and what an awful loss for the Kentucky Wildcats who continue to just have an underwhelming, underperforming season. South Carolina falls to Florida in the Swamp 38-6. to Tough going there for Shane Beamer and company as the Gamecocks try to just amass some kind of momentum as they head into the last couple of weeks of the season. In the ACC, Clemson defeats Louisville 31 to 16. NC State falls to Boston College 21 to 20 on a last second field goal by the Eagles. Uh, State 
likewise to Kentucky, continue to just have an underperforming season, uh, coupled with quite a few injuries, of course, but uh, you don't see the Wolfpack lose that often at home, especially to an opponent like Boston College, who is just not having a good year this year. Florida State hands Syracuse their fourth loss in a row, 38-3 is your final there. The Orange just continue to fall apart, and you have to wonder, you know, after starting 6-0, and a 6-6 and finish is not out of the realm of possibility for Syracuse. Uh, things have just continued to fall apart for them. Duke take down Virginia Tech at home. 24-7 is your final. Uh, Pitt defeats Virginia 37-7. And Miami uh, handles Georgia Tech in Atlanta 35-14. Now over to the Big Ten. Indiana falls to Ohio State 56-14. Michigan takes down Nebraska 34-3. Penn State handles Maryland 30 to nothing. A big shutout win for that Penn State defense against Maryland, who, you know, who is a tricky team. Doesn't have a great record, but is not a team that you necessarily want to see pop up on your schedule either. And I've said that multiple times this year, but Penn State handles them pretty easily. Purdue uh, hands Illinois their second straight loss, 31-24. Michigan State defeats Rutgers, 27-21. Iowa takes down Wisconsin, 24-10. And Minnesota defeats Northwestern, 31-3. In the Big 12, Kansas State hands Baylor another bad loss, 31-3, as Kansas State continues to have what is considered to be a very adequate season so far. Uh, Baylor, a disappointing year for the Bears. West Virginia defeats Oklahoma 23-20. That game in West Virginia, boy, things still just not going great for Brent Venables in his first year at the helm. And you have to wonder if, you know, with how much turmoil there was, uh, you know, when when Oklahoma went into the coaching search and, you know, decided on Brent Venables, you have to wonder if really that was the, the right decision or not. Uh, Oklahoma State takes down Iowa State 20-14, to and Kansas falls to Texas Tech 43-28. to Kansas, one of the feel-good stories at the beginning of the season, continues to slip, but they are bowl eligible at this point, so I think that's still considered what is a successful team or successful season for the Jayhawks, and uh, Lance Leipold continues to look like the right guy uh, for that team. In the Pac-12, USC takes down Colorado 55-17. That was a Friday night game. UCLA falls to Arizona 34-28. UCLA beginning to have some troubles now with a couple of losses to Oregon and now Arizona. They've got USC coming up this weekend, I believe. So things, you know, it's still a great season for Chip Kelly and his squad, but, you know, a couple of tough losses here now in the home stretch of the season. Utah takes down Stanford 42-7. Stanford can just continues to have an awful year. Washington State defeats Arizona State 28-18. And Oregon State defeats Cal 38-10. Now looking at, uh, at the top 25 for the college football playoff rankings. Again, these are the rankings we'll move with through the end of the regular season because these are the rankings that matter now. Uh, Although, if anything of note happens in the AP, we'll be sure to cover that. New members of the top 25, Cincinnati checks in at 25, Oregon State 23, and Oklahoma State back in the rankings at 22. Out of the rankings now are Texas, Illinois, and Kentucky. Your biggest drops in the top 25, NC State falls from 16 to 24. That's an eight-spot drop. Oregon falls six spots from 6 to 12. Your biggest climbers, Washington jumps up 
eight spots from 25 to 17. Florida State jumps up four spots from 23 to 19. And Kansas State drop, er, jumps up four spots, 19 to 15. And your top four in the college football playoff remain unchanged this week as everybody stays perfect. Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, and TCU check in at 1, 2, 3, and 4, respectively. But uh, we know that the impending game between Ohio State and Michigan looms next week. Uh, We'll be sure to cover that on next week's episode. But that's enough rambling for the beginning of this week's show. We'll go ahead and jump into our next segment of the week. As always, this is 4 Down Territory. First Down. Unfortunately, we do have to cover the situation in Virginia uh, on this week's show. It would not feel appropriate to disregard what happened earlier this week. In a show of solidarity, the ACC announced on Wednesday it will honor the University of Virginia with league-wide initiatives beginning this weekend in the wake of the shooting deaths of three Cavalier football players. Included among the initiatives are special helmet decals designed by the conference office, A moment of silence will be observed at all ACC home football games this weekend, and each home team will also have field signage with a UVA Strong graphic produced by the league office. The UVA Strong graphic will also be used on video boards and with digital and social media graphics. Devin Chandler, Lavelle Davis Jr., and Deshaun Perry were shot and killed Sunday night on a charter bus after returning from a class trip. Running back Mike Hollins was also shot and remains hospitalized. A fifth student, who is not a football player, was also shot and released from the hospital. Suspected shooter Christopher Darnell Jones Jr., a former Virginia football player, was arrested by police on Monday. He was denied bail during his first court hearing on Wednesday. Jones, age 22, faces three counts of second-degree murder, two counts of malicious wounding, and additional gun-related charges. He did not enter a plea on Wednesday. Earlier Wednesday, the Cavaliers canceled Saturday's scheduled home game against Coastal Carolina. Instead, the university will hold a memorial service for the three football players Saturday at 3.30 p.m. at John Paul Jones Arena. No decision has been made on the season finale against Virginia Tech on November 26th in Blacksburg. Before we move on, I just want to say that my thoughts and prayers are with all those affected by this senseless tragedy. Second down. On Tuesday night, Big Blue Nation turned on ESPN in hopes of seeing number four Kentucky beat Michigan State in the Champions Classic. The game took place in the same building as the first round loss to St. Peter's in March, providing the perfect opportunity to turn the page from what was an awful night for Kentucky fans. But instead of a cathartic victory, Kentucky stumbled its way to defeat with late game mistakes and stalled offense. Why are we talking about basketball? Well, the basketball team's 86-77 double overtime loss to the Spartans came just three days after the football team's 24-21 loss to Vanderbilt, arguably the worst defeat of the Mark Stoops era. It turns out Kentucky has had a lot of sad November weeks in years of late. The losses to Vanderbilt and Michigan State make this the sixth year in a row Kentucky has had consecutive football and basketball losses most of them coming in what some fans would call depressing fashion. So let's run through that list. Last year, in 2021, November 6th, Kentucky football loses 45-42 to Tennessee. Three days later, on November 9th, the basketball team loses 79-71 to number 9 Duke. 
in 2020. November 28th, a 34 to 10 loss to number six Florida at the time hampers what was a good season for Kentucky to that point. Then the next day on November 29th, Kentucky basketball loses 76 to 64 to Richmond. Richmond in Rupp Arena. It was the first start of a six game losing streak for that Kentucky team, which finished the season 9 and 16. In 2019, November 9th, Kentucky loses to Tennessee again in football, 17 to 13 is your final, and then loses to Evansville in basketball 3 days later, 67 to 64. Kentucky was number 1 at the time in the basketball rankings. In 2018, Kentucky loses on November 3rd, 34-17 to number 6 Georgia. Three days later, loses to number 4 Duke, 118-84 in basketball. And then four days later, loses to Tennessee in football, 24-7. So within a week's span, two tough losses for the football team and a terrible loss for the basketball team. And then five years ago, in 2017, on November 14th, Kentucky loses to number four Kansas in basketball, 65 to 61. And then four days later, loses to number seven Georgia in football, 42 to 13. Well, and just when you thought that week couldn't get any worse, the Saturday after that, Kentucky lost to Louisville, 44 to 17 at Kroger Field. Third down. UConn shocked Liberty 36-33 on Saturday to earn bowl eligibility for the first time since 2015. The Huskies moved to 6-5 under first-year coach Jim L. Mora, matching the total number of wins by former coach Randy Edsel during his second stint with the program. It was just UConn's second season with at least six wins since it appeared in the Fiesta Bowl following the 2010 season. Liberty was riding high after beating Arkansas 21-19 for their first win against an SEC opponent after moving to the Football Bowl subdivision just five years ago. However, the Flames' typically strong run defense allowed UConn to rush for 208 yards on 5.5 yards per carry. Running back Robert Burns put together a 100-yard performance, including a 58-yard breakaway scamper. Freshman quarterback Zion Turner put together another strong game with 103 passing yards and a touchdown after taking over the starting job from injured Taquan Robertson. Star linebacker Jackson Mitchell added one-yard scoop and score to get the Huskies out to a 14-3 start, building momentum. The Huskies were in one of the biggest holes in college football when Mora took over the program. Coming off of a 1-11 effort in 2021, UConn did not play football in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic and won just three games combined in 2019 and 2018. In addition to putting together perhaps the four worst seasons in program history, UConn departed the American Athletic Conference after the 2019 season and struggled to find any kind of identity as an independent. Morris snapped a three-year losing streak against FBS opponents against Fresno State on October 1st. Since then, the Huskies have won five of their last six games, which included a Power 5 victory over Boston College. The effort should be enough to earn Mora a spot on postseason National Coach of the Year lists. While the Flames were not part of the latest CFP rankings, their number 23 AP ranking means the Huskies topped a ranked opponent for the first time since beating number 13 Houston 20-17 in 
in 2015, the same year they went to the St. Petersburg Bowl. Fourth down. Last week, on an unseasonably warm November afternoon, Gallaudet offensive line coach Todd Collins jogged onto the field, pushing the team's big bass drum on wheels to midfield, where he banged on it repeatedly, signaling to the nation's only deaf and hard-of-hearing team that it was time to stretch. While many, of course, couldn't hear the thunderous rhythmic beat that echoed throughout the otherwise quiet campus, they could all feel its vibration. Boom! Lateral stretch to the right. Boom! Lateral stretch to the left. Boom! On one knee for hip flexors. Head coach Chuck Goldstein, who is of hearing, hasn't used a whistle at practice in 13 years. He said, At the end of the day, when I come into these gates and I come into work, I'm not deaf, but I'm part of this community. I've learned about the culture, and I respect the culture. As the sun set on the nation's only entirely deaf campus, the lights in the nearby dorm rooms glowed softly. When one blinks, it signals a visitor has arrived. The doorbells at Gallaudet change the lighting instead of making a sound because, obviously, most students cannot hear a doorbell or a knock. And on game nights, it's not uncommon to see multiple windows winking on different floors. In the morning, alarm clocks vibrate under pillows. The football team is undersized, composed of many players who have never been on a full roster, are still learning their position, and can't hear when the official blows a whistle to stop the play. They were picked this preseason to finish fifth in the Eastern Collegiate Football Conference, but the Bison have won their conference title and are returning to the Division III NCAA tournament for only the second time in school history, and the first time since 2013. They will travel to Doylestown, Pennsylvania on Saturday to face number 8 Delaware Valley University in a first-round game at noon Eastern. With all the close games, and you're not supposed to be winning, it's almost like the cherry on top of the cake every time you win again, said defensive coordinator Stephen Healy. I think the world has a lower expectation of us. We have a belief in ourselves, and to be able to get it done has just been, well, it's been pretty magical, to be honest. Practice last Thursday began with only 50 of the 70 players on the Bison's roster. Illness was working its way through the locker room where other players are injured and none are on scholarship. That's life in Division III football. The team buses from the nation's capital to games as far as Maine, and the press box consists of an open-air space under a metal canopy. Healy is also the strength and conditioning coach for every sport. There are only three full-time coaches on staff, Goldstein, Healy, and assistant coach and recruiting coordinator Shelby Bean. All the other coaches, all of the coaches are fluent in American Sign Language, and none of them are former players, including Collins, who is hard of hearing and was on the 2013 conference title team. The Bison have a hard of hearing receiver playing quarterback. They have a deaf offensive tackle who is less than 200 pounds. And the hard of hearing freshman long snapper? Healy said, he's got to be 5'4". He looks like he's 10 years old. I would argue he's the smallest college football player in the country. But the Bison aren't interested in your sympathy. Every season, 12 to 15 players join the team who don't know American Sign Language, creating a natural divide between the players who are deaf and the ones who are hard of hearing. Some have cochlear implants, some have hearing aids, some are only deaf in one ear. 
Bean was born with Goldenhar syndrome, a rare congenital condition that required his external ears to be surgically removed. The numerous surgeries he had as a child left his face paralyzed so he can't smile, frown, or even blink. When Goldstein first joined the coaching staff in the summer of 2009 as an offensive coordinator, he was, quote, fingerspelling his name. But in the deaf community, he eventually earned a, quote, sign name, which a deaf person gives as a symbol of friendship and respect. Like many of his players who enter the program, Goldstein had to learn ASL when he was hired from North Point High School near Waldorf, Maryland. The former linebacker at Salisbury University took a jumpstart ASL class that Gallaudet offers to incoming students and staff, but ultimately became fluent from being immersed in the campus culture and from his mistakes. In one of his first games as head coach, Goldstein became frustrated that the team wasn't playing well against Merchant Marine. It was halftime, and they had already fumbled the ball three times. He said, I wanted to let them know that I was angry. I was pissed. I was like, all right, they're going to know that this is not okay. So I come in, I take a chair, and I throw it against the wall. Only three kids turned around. They weren't facing me, and none of them heard me except for those three kids. Now Goldstein stands on the chair when he's addressing the team in the small locker room so they can all see him. His film sessions are organized because there is no time to waste. Lights off, show the play, lights on, sign it, explain it, repeat. Goldstein has led Gallaudet to 500 seasons or better in three of his first four years, including a 9-2 mark in 2013, the last time the Bison earned the ECFC title. Since then, though, the program has endured six straight losing seasons a canceled 2020 season during the COVID-19 pandemic, and a 4-3 NCAA mark last year. This year's team has finished 5-1 in league play to earn its automatic qualifier bid to the field of 32 teams. About 90 minutes before kickoff each week, Goldstein and his staff meet with officials to make sure they understand deaf culture and emphasize most of their players cannot hear the whistle. Those within the program say almost every game, somebody is penalized for a late hit. Referees sometimes warn players before calling a foul that they will throw the flag if they see it a second time, but they can't communicate that to the Bison, or don't try. There are no interpreters on the field aside from some players like offensive lineman Mitch Dolinar, who is hard of hearing and often tries to help. Dolinar said, People just don't understand. Deaf means I cannot physically hear. You still see the refs trying to talk to other players, still trying to talk to them, and I have to come in. I say, he cannot hear you. Talk to me or talk to the coaches. I'm lucky that I have a hearing aid. I can hear what you're saying and interpret for them sometimes, but I'm not on the defensive side of the ball where we have a lot more guys on defense who are deaf. While nobody is tracking what penalties occur because a player didn't hear the whistle, Gallaudet has been flagged 82 times this season for a total of 809 yards, compared with their opponent's 63 penalties for 584 yards. I look at officials like the weather, Healy said. They're like a natural disaster. They're a necessary requirement, but at the same time, you have no control over it. Eventually, they're able to laugh. Goldstein says Healy is the most comical character on the sideline when a play is imploding. Healy is a native of London, England, and the staff and players say he's like Dwayne Johnson with an English accent. 
He's the most animated, yelling on the sideline even though no one can hear him, waving his arms before ultimately ending in the surrender cobra pose with both hands on his head. All of it, he said, is worth it. We're recruiting players. We're keeping kids in school, and every day is a step toward a victory, Healy said. That's why this has been so sweet. It's nine years of waiting, and it pays off. It's just nice to have something pay off. Last month on homecoming weekend against their rivals, Maritime, Goldstein had an opportunity to use a play he was saving for the right moment. Gallaudet had scored 22 points in the fourth quarter and needed a two-point conversion to tie the game and send it into overtime. Quarterback Brandon Washington, who runs the Bison's triple option offense, ranks 15th in the nation with 145.78 all-purpose yards per game. Only caught the quarterback sneak part of the play before he turned around and ran back onto the field. He missed the second part of the play call, the pass. Goldstein was screaming Washington's name on the sideline, desperately trying to get his attention. There were no timeouts left. Gallaudet lost 26-24. That game didn't come down to just one play, Goldstein said. If it ever comes, it never comes down to one play, but that one was just one we couldn't get. Gallaudet University, a private school for deaf and hard of hearing students, claims to have invented the football huddle. A sign that reads, Home of the Huddle, established 1894, is attached to the painted white brick in the hallway leading to the modest athletic offices and locker rooms. During that season, Gallaudet played two deaf schools and quarterback Paul Hubbard was worried that other teams were stealing the Bison's plays because they were signing in the open. Hubbard decided to pull his teammates into a circle and thus the huddle was born. The history lessons were scattered everywhere on the small historic campus hidden in northeast D.C., where enrollment hovers just under 1,600 and roughly 200 are student-athletes. The plaque at the baseball field honors former center fielder William Hoy, who is credited with inventing the signs for strike and ball. For Gallaudet, the drum is equally as symbolic as part of their tradition, but it's also used to celebrate a defensive stop, or a big play. And it's practical. Half a dozen or so beats during the game indicates it's time for special teams unit to take the field. We're signing punt, but you have 70 guys on the sideline and no one's looking for a person signing, Goldstein said. So we bang the drum. They feel the vibration and they know where to look. The middle of the field, coaches sign the punt and everybody runs out. After a win, the big bass drum rolls back out. We can feel it one player said. We can feel the beat of the drum. And that's when they start dancing. Hey everybody, this is Alex Butler here with this week's Mascot Minute, where we take a deep dive into some of your favorite collegiate mascots. This week, we're heading to the land of Maction, the Mid-Atlantic Conference, to take a look at the zips of the University of Akron. One of the more memorable nicknames in intercollegiate athletics, the Zips, belongs to the University of Akron. In 1927, a campus-wide contest was conducted to choose a nickname for the university's athletic teams. Student Margaret Hamlin suggested Zippers, which was also the name of a popular rubber overshoe sold by Akron's B.F. Goodrich Company in 1950. In 1950, then-athletic director Kenneth Red Cochran shorted the name to the Zips. So what is a Zip and what does it look like? 
Well, in 1953, a committee suggested the kangaroo as a mascot, and it was accepted by the student council. Uh, originally, it was met with derision as it was not put to a campus-wide vote. However, over time, Zippy has become a fan favorite at the school. Zippy has always been a costumed mascot and currently wears a blue letter sweater and a golden blue rat cap. In a 2010 interview, she stated the things they carried was her favorite band. In 2007, Zippy was chosen as one of the 12 collegiate mascots to compete for Capital One Bowl Mascot of the Year. With an unprecedented 13-0 record, Zippy was named the winner on January 1st, 2008. One final cool fact about Zippy, she is one of only eight female mascots in collegiate sports. Are there any mascots that you'd like us to feature on the show? Hit us up at Chatting Yardage on Twitter and let us know. Once again, this has been Alex Butler with your Mascot Minute. And now we'll jump into our pick six games of the week for week 12. These, of course, are six games that I find interesting, and I believe you should too. First game of the week, TCU takes on Baylor Saturday, 12 o'clock start on Big Fox. TCU comes into this game only a two-and-a-half-point favorite, trying to stay perfect, make its way to the Big 12 championship and the college football playoff. Baylor, of course, has had an underwhelming season this year, but you know that the Bears would love to play spoiler against the Horn Frogs. Again, that's Saturday, 12 p.m. on Fox. Second game of the week, Duke travels to Pitt. Noon start on ACC Network. Duke with a 7-3 record. A couple of games left on the year. Looks to really have a good season under first-year head coach Mike Elko. What a turnaround that he has had this season. Pitt, meanwhile, sitting on 6-4. and four. Get a bit of an underwhelming season for the Panthers and Matt Narduzzi. You know the you know after winning the ACC championship last year, they had higher hopes for this season. Nonetheless, this is a game between two uh, two very physical teams, especially on defense. Pitt only a seven point favorite in this one. Again, that's 12 p.m. on ACC Network. We'll stay in the ACC. Next game, 3:30 p.m. start on ESPN three. NC State travels to Louisville. Louisville at 6-4, and four, a four-point favorite in this one over the 7-3 and three Wolfpack. NC State trying to remain ranked as they head into the final game of the season next week, but obviously a loss here would drop them out as the Wolfpack only sits at number 24. Louisville has had some really good wins this season and hopes to continue that momentum, although the coaching situation with Scott Satterfield appears still relatively shaky, but would be a very good win taking down NC State. Now over to the SEC, 7.30 p.m. on Saturday night on SEC Network. Ole Miss takes on Arkansas. Uh, Ole Miss a two-and-a-half point favorite coming into this one. Arkansas desperately needs a good win here, sitting at 5-5 five and five after what, a, what was a very strong start uh, at the beginning of the year has really kind of fallen off. Uh, Ole Miss, meanwhile, trying to avoid a second straight loss uh, on the season. And, you know, they're, they're looking for a good win here as they go into the Egg Bowl next week. You, you know that football teams try to look at every, every season, you know, one week at a time. But they also be lying to you if they didn't say that they're not looking at their rivalry games that are coming up for specific teams next week. So uh, should be a good one there at Arkansas, 7.30 p.m. start on SEC Network. Game number five, a game between two ranked teams out of the Pac-12. USC number seven at nine and one. 
takes on number 16 UCLA at 8 and 2. This is an 8 p.m. start Saturday night on Fox. USC a two and a half point favorite, a game that I think a lot of us were looking at a few weeks ago as uh, potentially determining who's heading to the Pac-12 championship game. But with UCLA taking their second loss at this point, they're hoping to maybe just play spoiler against the Trojans. This game is sold out for UCLA, so good on them for uh, selling out the Rose Bowl. Should be a good game between two very good Pac-12 opponents. And then we'll stay in the Pac-12 for game number six. 10.30 p.m. start, a little late-night action on ESPN. Utah travels to Oregon, two 8-2 teams, uh, both ranked at number 10 and number 12, respectively. Oregon going to be looking to bounce back from their loss last week uh, to Washington. Utah, meanwhile, trying to finish out strong here toward the end of the season against the Ducks. Both teams 8-2, Utah only a two-point favorite. This could be a good one uh, to stay up late for on Saturday night. As always, be part of the conversation. Let us know what you're going to be watching on Saturday by following the show on Twitter at Chatting Yardage. The extra point. As mentioned earlier, last week Vanderbilt upset Kentucky for their first SEC win since 2019, which is a 26-game SEC losing streak. So it feels only fitting to give the Commodores this week's extra point. So playing us out. This episode is the Vanderbilt Marching Band with their fight song, Dynamite. Until next week, I'm Cam Matthews. This has been the Chatting Yardage Podcast, brought to you by Sports Drink. Want to be part of the conversation? Follow the show on Twitter, at Chatting Yardage. We'll see you next week for another brand new episode.